Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Today we're going to be looking at Wander, the Cult of Barnacle Bay, a sort of more family-friendly, zombicide-ish dungeon crawler. Yes, and for our design discussion, we're going to talk about turn structure and how the different turn structures work in games. So whether it be player takes their turn, then the enemy takes their turn, or all players take their turn, then enemies go, or an initiative track, or just the different ways to, to deal with the turn structure. Yeah, and I have some pretty strong feelings about this one, but not even all aligned on one particular way. (laughs) I guess I'm conflicted, so it should be a fun discussion. Yeah, that'll be interesting. But before we get into that, let's thank some of our Patreon patrons. Uh, Always really appreciative of you all, especially now with the coronavirus crisis making everyone's pocketbooks feel a little tighter. We really appreciate your support, and the support of anyone who just gets on the Slack and talks there or our new Discord channel. You can find links to that in our recent videos or in this podcast episode. People who comment on the YouTube videos, people who leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. We appreciate any way you kind of engage and show your support for the channel. But we especially appreciate this week, Rando Thomas, a co-op fan, Priscilla De La Torre, a co-op MVP, and Matt Powers, a co-op lover. So thank you all three of you to all of our Patreon supporters and everyone out there who's part of our little gaming community. You said Matt Powers for the last one, right? Matt Powers, correct. But we have a Chris Powers on the Slack. Maybe he got his brother involved, although I've not heard them mention each other. (laughs) Interesting. Huh. I wonder if they are related. Yeah, because I think Matt's made some comments in YouTube videos and stuff. Powers is a common last name, right? I mean, the only other one I know is Austin. Wait for it. (laughs) (laughs) okay the wait for it made it funny (laughs) all right so let's go ahead and get into the discussion of wander cult barnacle bay and it's funny because if you look it up on board game geek it's wander colon the cult of barnacle bay if you look at it on the front of the box it doesn't say that at all it says a wanderer story the cult of barnacle bay so there's a little bit of discrepancy in what the title is. If you see the box, it'll say something different than what you see on Board Game Geek. Well, I, th- I think the overall idea is, and I, I've talked to the people who publish it a bit, I think their plan is this year to have a new Kickstarter with a new Wander set and probably a reprint of the old one, or at least some of the elements of the old one, because I know the expansion's hard to find. So I think they want to make this like a series where you can bring characters from one to the other and like enemies and that kind of stuff, but play all new branching campaigns, get all new items, all that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. You could tell it's kind of like chapter one of the Wanderer story here. And so let's get into the theme a little bit. So what what is a Wanderer? Well, a Wanderer is a group that is basically, I don't know, like the heroes of the time. They come around kind of enforcing the good. Now, you aren't an intra... It is an intra... That is not a word. Anthropomorphized? <laughs> yes. It is an intra... <laughs> <laughs> it is an intro. <laughs> Why do I Dude, keep an- wanting to put a T in there? Anthro, anthro. I know. It is an anthropomorphic world. Yes. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Where? I can't even get through this part. I'm just going to leave that all in because that was terrible. Oh, yeah. Don't even do that as an outkit take. That's, that's gold right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. It is a world full of animals that are acting like people. 
talking and, and walking around. And so all the characters are animals. And the Wanderers is no different. They have different types of animals. But this story specifically, the cult of Barnacle Bay, is about a fishing town called Barnacle Bay. And this cult leader comes in and starts transforming the people of the town into not just normal animals the way they were, but they're half fish, half animal. So the story is pretty cool. And as you can imagine, it makes for pretty cool miniatures as well. So all the bad guys are these like half you know, land animal, half sea creature type animals. And then the wanderers themselves are all one type of animal or another. Yeah. If you're a nerd like me, kind of it's a mix of Redwall, you know, like the animal heroes of Redwall fighting against uh, like H.P. Lovecraft Innsmouth, you know, a town that has like a fish curse, basically uh, twisting everybody in it. Oh, you know, I didn't even put that together because the anthropomorphic animals. Yeah. And did we do... Was it was that our last episode aftermath for you and me? I think so. Oh man! So how many campaign based animal starring dungeon crawlers can we do? <laughs> Let's try to do one uh, in two more weeks and just keep it going. I mean, they they have become a thing lately. Apparently, no quirky circuits was in between. Oh darn! Well, I mean, you are kind of controlling animal. There's robots. a dog robot in there. Yeah, there's a dog. Is a cat a riding a Roomba? It, uh, it counts. And a sushi <laughs> robot? Did they move around a board? It's kind of like a dungeon crawler. All right, you're stretching now. <laughs> so to go over the basics of gameplay, this is a campaign-based game. You play through a series of campaigns at three levels. So you'll do basically three missions at level one, three missions at level two, three missions at level three, each one of those ending with a boss fight. They suggest you have four characters at all times. I mean, you can control fewer than that, but four is a suggestion. And they each have some items. Leveling is a lot like Zombicide. If you've played that, every enemy you defeat will get you some experience. And every time you level up, you get a choice of different abilities to upgrade your character with. But every mission you level up again, so it's not like something that stays over from campaign mission to campaign mission. But in terms of the actual main gameplay, you have this initiative tracker with cards for each of the characters and enemy groups. And when an enemy's turn comes up, they have really basic AI to attack if they can or move towards people if they can't attack yet. And then for the heroes, they generally get two actions, three if they've upgraded, and they're your basic kind of things. You can move, you can attack, and uh, heroes roll for their attacks and roll to defend against enemy attacks. The enemies never roll for anything. And there's some other things, like you have a line of sight through darkness tiles, and bosses have these unique boss activation decks, but it's a fairly typical, I mean, we'll talk about some of the ways it's different, but... On the basics, it's a fairly typical dungeon crawler with dice-based combat and a branching campaign narrative. All right, well, let's get into our five points. What we always do here is we talk about the top five things we think you need to know about the game, starting with number five, which is our least important thing, going up to number one, which is our most important thing. It's interesting because a lot of times when we do these lists, I either have like three things and then I'm scratching for the last two or I got like 20 things and this is one of those I got 20 things games there there are a lot of elements of this game and I think it does some unique and interesting things but I also think it has some unique and interesting challenges as well yeah and I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this because with the quarantine Peter and I have not played this at all together whereas a lot of these games we've at least played once or twice even on tabletop simulator and just talking to you over the weeks that we got ready to cover this, it sounds like your opinion has been complex, to say the least. So uh, do you want me to start or do you want to start this time? 
I'll go ahead and start. And my number five, actually, I just changed. So speaking of all the things <laughs> I've had, I literally just changed it as you were going through your description because I was like, oh, yeah, I should probably mention that. And that's the leveling system. I do think this is a key element. It is similar to Zombicide in the fact that, you know, when you level up, you have one of two choices of things to do. As you level up, the monsters get harder. But it also leads to a monster spawn, and that is one major difference between this and Zombicide. There isn't spawning at the end of every round. There's only spawning at certain times. Once when you first enter a level, and then as characters level themselves up, then you spawn again. But one of the interesting things they do with the leveling that I haven't seen before and I really like, it's kind of a catch-up mechanism. One of the problems with Zombicide that you can have is that characters can out-level the rest of the group, and some characters... You know, once you fall behind that leveling curve, it's really hard to catch back up again because the first level up is always an extra action, and that's true here as well. So you get to five experience, you get an extra action. Well, here what they do to kind of combat that a little is once you reach the first level, you're going to spawn one card worth of enemies, but also everybody else in the group gets one experience. When you get to level two, it's very similar. Everybody gets two experience and you spawn two cards worth of stuff. So even if you're behind, it gives you a little bit of a way to catch up and get that extra action and really start catching up with the group. So the leveling system, I mean, I'm sure Mike's going to talk about this a little more. Your options are, are a little bit limited, but I did find there is typically a path that I would tend to go down. I don't know if it's an ideal path or not, but I tended to stick with the same upgrades each time. Although I will say it did vary a little based on my situation. So I don't think that they're that different as far as power levels between the two sides of the leveling. It just kind of depends how you want to build your guy. And we did tend to build very similarly because you start over at level zero at the beginning of every mission. So you're leveling up every single time through, and we did tend to level the guys fairly similarly, although we sometimes made a difference based on how the scenario leaned. And one final point, and this is just a weird component thing, but they didn't give you any way to track the leveling, so I'm not sure why they left that out. It seems like an oversight. And then one other component thing that kind of goes along with it, they also didn't give you a way to track which character or who is activating currently. Now, it's not that big of a problem, but it would have been nice to have some kind of visual that you could move along and tell who is activating. So I thought those were two publisher-level oversights on the game, which otherwise has fantastic components. Yeah, I will be talking about that a bit later, but I agree with pretty much all you said. Uh, my number five is the enemy activation and the way enemies activate in this one. And this is something that I liked, but it's not going to appeal to all crawler fans. So I really appreciate how accessible and quick and simple enemy activation is. First of all, a lot of enemies won't activate at all. Like, you'll usually populate, as Peter said, the entire board for, like, a given part of the mission, a given encounter, when you first enter it. But a lot of enemies won't have line of sight to you because of, like, darkness tokens and walls and stuff. And that just means that they do nothing. They just sit there until you engage them, which often means you've finished every other enemy off in that area and you, like, open the darkness to get them to activate. So it does, like, keep things really simple. You usually don't have too many enemies to resolve actions for, unless you're crazy and just rush forward. And even within the activations, it's super simple. When their initiative card comes up, again, if they can attack, they do. And if they can't, they usually, except for a few uh, exceptions, just move a single space towards somebody to try to attack next time. But a cool thing that I haven't seen much is that 
all of the enemies of a given type, if they can attack the same character, they will attack the same character, which I think is kind of a fun twist on things. It forces you to think a little bit more differently about how you kind of manage their aggro and how you whittle down groups instead of finishing somebody off entirely so you don't get like some huge attack from one group. But again, this is really streamlined, really straightforward. If you want, you know, something like Sword and Sorcery, where they're going to do a unique thing for every type of enemy at different ranges, or something like Gloomhaven, where you're going to draw a new card for them and they'll do new things each time, this is not going to give you that feeling. But for kind of more family level or casual dungeon crawlers, I think it's a really nice system. Yeah, and I left this one off my list, but this is certainly one of the 20 things I was talking about earlier. It is interesting, and actually this was my number five a second ago, so I will talk about a little bit about it, is I said there are stealth elements to this game. And what I mean by that is exactly what Mike was talking about with the line of sight. It's not like you're creating noise or anything like that. But if you just run straight in and run after that enemy group that's in front of you, instead of playing it more tactically and maybe shooting at them and make them come to you and really try to avoid triggering other groups of enemies, you'll find yourself overwhelmed pretty quickly. So you do have to have some tactical decisions that are made based on this. Although it's funny because I was talking to Nicholas the other day and the enemies only activate if they see you. So we were in a weird position where we were behind some darkness and we had a group of enemies in front of us because they just walked closer to you and they were in the space in front of us. And there was another group of enemies that could clearly see the enemies were taken out. And Nick's laughing. He's like, wait, so they just saw their buddy take it out and they don't notice, they don't get alerted at all to anything. It's like, nope, because we're hidden from them. <laughs> so there is a little bit of, uh, there can be situations that are funny that, that pop up like that where, yeah, it doesn't actually make sense. But as far as gameplay works, it really works. I guess if you if you consider them like zombie-ish, maybe, like with their possession or whatever, like their fish transformation. You know, zombies don't care if they see other zombies fall down. They only care when they see, like, the fresh meat show up, right? Sure. No, that makes sense. I never got the sense that they were that. But yeah, no, maybe. I didn't either. I'm just trying to justify it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think they did it to streamline gameplay, and I think that's fine. I was never taken out of theme because of it, but I, I had never even thought about it until he mentioned that. He's like, wait, they just saw him get an arrow through the face, and like, they're like, all right, cool, that's normal. All right, so what's your number four, Peter? Yeah, so my number four is the upgrades. And originally I had written interesting upgrades, but then I just left it at upgrades because I do have a little bit of a con to the upgrades as well. And what I mean by upgrades is you get upgraded equipment. I'm not talking about the leveling system, but you have two hands worth of weapons and then you have six equipment spots that you can use as well. And sometimes you'll use it just to carry extra weapons with you. But a lot of times that's where you put your armor and your helmet and your accessories and things like that. And those all work from those equipment spots in your bag. And they have a lot of variety as far as like when you see them, like there's fish hooks and, you know, it might be able to pull somebody or there are spells that might be able to shoot somebody and do piercing and give you better defense. And when you put them together, they really can make a pretty significant difference. You can increase your defense by two or three. You can increase your life. You can increase your number of rerolls for this and that. But when I look at them at the end of the day, they're really not that different from each other. So ultimately, yeah, they're varied. But a lot of times I'd be like, do I want this four attack melee weapon or do I want this four attack melee weapon? This one gives me one more hit point. This one gives me a reroll on my defense. It's, it's like, I don't know that the differences between the items are exciting. 
I did have fun to some degree building, like, if I wanted a guy to be really defensive because his defense did damage to the enemies, then I would I would kind of focus on that. And so for some characters it mattered, but for others I was like, well, I don't care if he has ranged or melee or, or what he has. So while I do think there's a lot of variety there, and I do think you can come up with some cool stuff, a lot of things are so slightly different from each other than I wasn't excited about everything. A lot of times we get an item and we're like, oh, yeah, I got something that's basically the same already. Yes, I will. Again, touch on that very soon. <laughs> uh, my number four is the initiative system, which I think is probably the most clever thing in the game that I haven't seen done this way before. And I mentioned already that each character and each enemy group that's currently active or on the board will have a card on the initiative track. And that already has some kind of cool tactical implications because uh, with the stealth element Peter was talking about, it matters when you reveal a card. You know, you might want to go right after the archers because there's a ton of them there and have your guy who's after them charge in and defeat them all before they get a chance to do anything. So that's kind of cool. And then enemies, whenever there's a tie in their targeting, will choose a person who's higher on initiative. And they can do quite a bit of damage. So you'll often be kind of jockeying because you can take an action to move yourself in initiative to the top or the bottom. So you'll be jockeying for position to keep the person who can guard and survive attacks at the top. Really enjoy that part. And then if you want to kick it up a notch, there's an advanced initiative board on the other side of it where every single initiative slot has a bonus, like plus one defense, plus one attack, or plus one move. And those apply to the hero in that spot and the enemy in their spot. So you now even want to be adjusting initiatives so that you don't have the enemy who's about to attack you have plus one attack. Or you don't have the enemy who's already really tough to kill have plus one defense. So I find the initiative and kind of moving people around on the initiative uh, really clever. Something I've never seen before quite in this way. Of course, I've seen initiative tracks in like Mice and Mystics and stuff. But I think this one is really cool and gives you more tools to mess with it than uh, most games that use this kind of system. Yeah, I'll touch more on that later. But now to my number three, which is scenario variety. And this is one thing I think they do a pretty good job of. So as Mike said, you're going to do three missions per level. So you have three levels and each one has a mission, 1.0, 1.5, and then a boss fight. And the boss fight really is just that. It's you and the boss. There's not really other enemies on the board. Now they may spawn them or something else. There's actually a lot of things you set up in boss fights, which they don't explain, but kind of become more evident as the boss cards flip up and you activate the boss. But getting to the scenario variety within each of those levels, so 1.0, 1.5, there's actually three different scenarios there. So you can choose three different paths. Now, in my mind, they led you down a path in certain situations. It's like, well, you could do this to prevent cultists from spawning later, or you could go chase this water sound. But the bottom line is you're not writing anything down anyway, so it doesn't really matter which one you take. But I do think the scenarios are varied between them, so it does give you a little bit of replayability if you want to play back through the campaign. You'd get different scenarios each time. And I think they do a decent job of changing line of sight angles and giving you different things to do. They have very few tokens that you'd put on the board. They're like spawning tokens and then they're mission objectives, but they do interesting thing with, with the mission objectives. And so they provide some variety there. I do think it's a game where I'd be interested to explore 
more of the missions and kind of see how they play around with that system. Because I, I am always interested in different ways of using very simple and small amounts of components to create complexity through the rules in different ways. So I think they do a good job with the limited amount of components they have. Yeah, we're definitely going to have some doubling, although we might say things a little differently. Uh, so I'll touch on that later. But hey, my number three is character upgrading and leveling. So it's kind of a combination of your five and four. On the positive side, I do think that leveling up the characters is fun and they each have kind of cool abilities. But I totally agree with you that in general, when you have the choice of one or the other, it kind of seems like one is better. Now, it is going to be contextually based, so some missions might change it. But I felt like I was kind of going down the same upgrade path, which isn't great because since you are going to be stuck with these characters for the entire, you know, 10 mission campaign, unless you kind of trade around you're probably going to go down that same upgrade path many times. So that's not really exciting on the fourth or fifth or sixth play. But I do agree that the items alleviate that summon, do make it fun, do make it exciting. They do get more interesting with the level two and three items. But I still also agree with you that in the end, maybe the game is a little too streamlined and the items don't have much difference between them. I always felt the exact same way about Zombicide leveling and Zombicide items, that it wasn't really that exciting, especially once you'd played a few times. Now, I do also think that what you said is true, that the kind of new idea of giving free experience when one person levels up is great, but the leveling here is just okay, and I think it will get a little bit dull as you play through the entire campaign. Yeah, no, well said. I agree, obviously, because those were a lot of my points that I had as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. I just totally cribbed them from your list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we've got a lot of overlap on this list already, so let's see if it continues. And actually, it is going to continue right here, because my number two is something you've mentioned already, and that's the initiative track. And I think this is going to be the biggest pro for people. When people talk about this game, what makes this game unique, the initiative track seems to come up, and I totally agree. And the way I played with it, is not the right way to do it. I started with that advanced initiative track right from Mission Zero. I would say probably play that Mission Zero. There's like a prequel mission that I would play on the basic side where you don't have to do all the modifiers because it doesn't add that much, but it's certainly just another place you have to look at. And so I would say for your first game, just do it with the basic initiative track. There's already interesting enough stuff on there. You'll be learning some tips and tricks as you play with that initiative track on that side. But then, you know, very quickly, I would say switch over to that advanced side where you're going to get extra movement actions or you're going to get extra attack dice or defense dice. And all that's pretty cool. And I do think that that's what people will remember about this game. That's what really separates this game from just the standard Zombicide is this and probably the line of sight system a little bit as well. But while it makes a fairly big impact early, I found that the more and more I played, I didn't mess with it as much. It didn't seem as important, maybe because defenses are getting higher, attacks are getting higher, and so one extra point later in the game didn't seem to make that much of a difference, and early on, it, it felt more impactful. Now, one other interesting thing to note is that the bosses don't scale based on this track at all, and so... When you're playing a boss fight, it's actually just an advantage to have this. Now, certainly a lot of the bosses will spawn minions, but that was an interesting decision on their part that the boss doesn't have a card on the initiative track. They just activate after each player's activation, and so they're not getting any bonuses at all from that track. So if you want to make those boss fights a little bit easier, certainly play on the advanced side for them. 
Yeah, and I mean, as I already said, I really, really like the initiative track. I do think it's kind of the coolest thing here, but, you know, it's not the most important part of the actual gameplay for me, which is why it was my number four. But my number two, you already talked about this some, so again, I'll try not to repeat you too much, but it is the branching campaign, and I generally like this. I think it's cool that you get to make choices. I didn't agree with you that it was obvious which way to go. My son and I definitely picked uh, different options. And the scenarios are generally pretty different. Now, there is kind of one key issue about them that we'll get into later, but uh, we'll save that for final thoughts. But yeah, they throw different challenges at you. They throw different, like, kind of unique objectives at you. It's not 100% unique. There were, like, three just kind of skimming through them after I'd played through that had pretty similar mechanics. But by and large, they tend to do new things. Now, I will say, like, the story, there's not really much story here. They just have, like, a little paragraph or two to kind of set up the situation you're in. But that's pretty well written. So, you know, don't come here looking for some Madara-level, like, narrative experience. But, you know, it'll do enough to kind of get you in the game and get you into the encounter. And yeah, overall, it's pretty good. Like, not mind-blowing. The missions aren't amazingly diverse. There are some pretty cool ones. Probably my favorite was chasing down this courier before he could escape and, like, alert everyone you were there. That was pretty neat. So they're just pretty good. Yeah, I'm a little torn on this. I like the fact that there are multiple paths. On each level, 1, 1.5, you get multiple story options. And so you could play through it three times here and get a completely different story each time. And that's really good, especially for early missions, for playing with different groups of people. But at the same time, in order to see all of this stuff, you have to play through the campaign three times. The boss fights aren't going to be much different. Now, yes, you can fight the end boss at the end of each of the three stages or each of the first two stages have their own specific boss for those stages. So yes, you could fight the end boss three times if you wanted instead of fighting those stage-specific bosses. But I don't know if it wouldn't have been better served as three different campaigns. And so I'm not having to play through the same campaign, even though it's different, just to see, the sa- to see new material. So I-, I don't know how I feel about that. Maybe we'll make that a design discussion for the future. Well, yeah, and I'll say something I didn't mention that I do like a lot is that they gave very clear and simple rules for playing these as one-offs. So if you really want to treat this like more like a Zombicide than a different game, you can just take a random assortment of items, drop into any scenario you want, and have at it. Which I think, you know, could actually be, in some cases, a more enjoyable way to play the game for certain groups, especially once they've gone through most or all of the campaign at least once, you know? Yeah, and I guess, I mean, there's certainly value because those early missions especially, like I said, you definitely want to play through because you're going to play with more than one group more than likely. And you don't want to have to play the same mission each time. So I certainly see value in in early missions. But by the time I get to Act 3, I don't know that I'm going to want to play to Act 3 that many times. And the nice part, like you said, is you can just play them as one-offs. So they've definitely give you some variety. I'm just, I'm trying to figure out what the value of having it this way versus having three specific stories where it's more of a linear campaign and the campaign will fit together better oh, and okay. just having one campaign. You know what I mean? And, I, and I making it three different I, campaigns. I, I was confused. I was like, well, it kind of is three different campaigns. You can play through it three times and not see the same stuff. But I get what you're saying now. You're, you're focusing on like the narrative and the cohesiveness because right now they yes. kind of have to make everything work, whether I go to the sewers or confront the cultists. So you would have liked a more... I mean, they could have taken the exact same content and just written different flavor text almost is what you're saying. 
Exactly. And, you know, you don't have to have three branching things for the same campaign. It could have literally been three campaigns. Yeah. And then the narrative would have been more linear, yes. And I guess some people like that, some people don't. But you could have played through campaign one or campaign two or campaign three. And I feel like I'm getting more value out of that, personally. Yeah, I mean, again, it's almost semantics. Unless they designed some new bosses for each campaign, so it really was kind of like a different thing. But no, I, I can see your point. But anyway, what's your uh, number one, Peter? So my number one is a, a flat-out con, and that's, for me, the scenarios dragged. They seemed longer than I wanted them to be. At the beginning of the scenarios, it's cool because you're doing a lot of leveling up. You're making a lot of strategic choices. But I felt by the end of them... And I mean, part of this is a tension thing. Like, by the time I got to the end of the mission, I felt like I had maybe lost one guy, maybe nobody, and I had one or two groups of enemies left to fight. And I kind of knew I was going to win. I could take my time about doing it. That's the other thing. There's not a lot of time pressure with it. And so I could have taken my time and just set myself up, used the line of sight rules to really set myself up in a perfect way of getting to them. And maybe I would have lost one character, but there's no way I was going to lose three or four more guys. So a lot of times at the end of the scenario, I would just be like, all right, well, we're going to win. You're not going to get anything more. It's not even like you loot the enemies after you kill them. The only loot is from treasure chests, or if you go in darkness, you flip them over. Sometimes there'll be treasure there, but it's not even like you're looting enemies. So there was no reason for me to want to finish each of the scenarios. Some of them would be more exciting. Uh, even the one you were talking about, the one where you have to kill this big boss and he's walking around and you're, you're there's a little bit of time pressure on that one. But actually, we got him before he was even halfway done. So there wasn't even the scenario that's supposed to be time pressure because the boss is walking around. It, it wasn't much pressure for us because we kind of made a beeline for him and then still found that the end of the scenario pretty easy. But all the scenarios kind of force you to defeat every enemy. But killing the enemies gets you experience, but who cares at the end of the mission because you're resetting for the next mission anyway. So I found that it kind of petered out near the end of the scenarios, and you're just kind of fighting to, for the sake of fighting. And it it wasn't very interesting at that point. Yeah, this is what I was mentioning too, and I think you're the one who mentioned this first to me and kind of put it in my head. But I do think they missed the mark in most of the scenario design in terms of having that consistent pressure on the players. Because in theory, the only real pressure, except for, again, like a couple of scenarios that have a specific time element to them, is how much damage you take. And the stealth element we talked about before and the use of darkness and kind of setting up your fights makes it feel like a bunch of like kind of mini encounters sometimes, especially on some maps where they really let you kind of go beat by beat. And that even more kind of makes it feel... I mean, I won't even say it's a negative. It makes it feel more like I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons or something instead of a board game. It's like, I'm going to get through everything. I'm going to have all these encounters. I'm going to have all these fights. I'll get to rest in between each one. So some people might really love that, I guess. But for me, with like a board gaming experience, I, I'm with you. I didn't feel excitement in most of the missions because it was so rare that we were close to dying. And without that, there's nothing really hanging over my head that's going to make me go, oh my gosh, this is you know coming down to the wire. I, I have little chance of this. I almost never got that. Yeah, and two quick points to what you just said. Number one, the reason it didn't feel like D&D &D to me is that D&D, &D, you're going to get experience and it's going to carry over to the next mission. You're going to get cool loot potentially with the next fight around the corner. So at least you're pushing towards something there 
here it didn't feel like you were pushing toward anything. And I forgot what the second point was. Oh, well. Why don't you say petered out again? Because I like that that was your name. You know, it's like petered out. <laughs> I, I petered out on that second point. Maybe I'll come back to it later. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, so uh, I'll jump in with my number one. And this is kind of leans pro for me. And it's the, the tactical feeling of the combat. This is almost an amalgamation of the stuff we've already talked about. But I do really enjoy the dice. I like exploding dice in general. And I think the combat is very impactful and quick here. I think uh, the tactics of targeting enemies because of their combined fire, the tactics of targeting enemies because of their initiative, how killing them changes the initiative, and then sort of the stealth feeling of setting up your strikes, almost like you're, you know, playing a ninja game where you have to get each of your assassinations to go off without a hitch before too many other people run in. That's going to totally sing for some groups, uh, not be a hit for others. I generally enjoyed it. Now, it's not a full-on pro because... It's so streamlined that with co-op, even when I was controlling two characters playing with my son, it wasn't much of a puzzle. I really needed solo for it to become something really engaging and interesting. So that's going to hit you different ways. You know, if you want a streamlined game, and I guess I'm kind of getting into final thoughts here, then this is going to work really well. But the second you want more depth, you pretty much have to play this solo And that's not going to work for everybody, especially with it being a lighter theme, a more family-friendly theme. It doesn't really seem like the kind of game you're going to want to get just for solo play, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, the weight of it, you could easily control four characters. But that same, you know, tactical things that you do, we're going to skip these two players' actions so we can also skip the enemy's action. So that way we can, you know, reveal this darkness tile and then all four of our characters will get to act before any of the enemies in this group will get to act. So there's a lot of like tactical thinking that way. But at the same time, first of all, it's the same puzzle in my mind. Like, it's always, okay, skip to the person who's next in initiative order, so that way you get four chances to kill these things before they go. So after I figured out that out, it wasn't as interesting to me anymore. But not only that, but it's not very fun for the people controlling those two characters whose turns you're skipping. And it's not going to be the same people every time, obviously, because there are different groups of monsters, and the, you know, the initiative ebbs and flows as you kill monsters, and you know whatever the next group of guys you're fighting is. So the roles will change. But at the same time, I mean, it's not like it's a a brain burner of a puzzle. So, yes, I agree. It felt that way at first, especially with my son running forward, head head on, pulling a Leroy Jenkins, like running into a room full of enemies and like everybody attacking. I actually felt like that was more of an interesting puzzle because we had to figure out how to get out of this like death trap that we had put ourselves in. For me, that's when it shined. But at the same time, if you want to progress through the campaigns and stories, I mean, we didn't have much of a chance of winning. I feel like you have to kind of play it more slow and you got to decide whether that's for you or not. All right. Well, let's just kind of finish up our final thoughts. I'll go first. So I think uh, this game is going to work out for some groups. And let me try to kind of lay them out. If you want a crawler that you can play with your family or with your kids, I think this generally fits the bill, especially if you use the basic initiative side Uh, Yes, as Peter just noted, some kids might want to, like, kind of run in and might make the game tougher than it should be, but that's actually a good look for it. That's going to make it tenser in a way that could be more fun for them and for you. 
I also think it's a pretty good one if you want a light crawler for solo. Now, <laughs> I don't know if just playing solo the campaign is going to keep your interest for too long, so you might even just want to drop the campaign element and just play one-offs. Because I will say, there's a really nice difference in how level 2 and level 3 scenarios feel. All the enemies get upgraded, and not just in their values, but also in special abilities, like they can poison you and do other stuff to you. So I think if you just kind of almost like treat it like a zombicide, where you flip from scenario to scenario, and mix up level 2s and level 3s in there, you might have a really good time. But if you want a heavier crawler, if you want really extreme tactics, if you want complex and challenging enemy AI... I don't think this is necessarily going to check off any of those boxes for you. And it is, again, an odd game in that if you play your best, you're going to actively decrease the tension of the game. It's not quite balanced for, like, really good play, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah, so, so I, I don't know. Like, for, for me, this wasn't a huge hit. I definitely had fun playing it with my son, but I don't think it'll have a lot of staying power. But we'll see what the new Kickstarter brings, because, again, that should be coming at the end of this year. But uh, for someone who maybe is not as in the mood for a heavier game, I'm kind of going for heavier crawlers right now. I think this could work really well. But what do you think, Peter? All right, so I'm going to list off my pros first because there are some pros to this game. Number one, the story is great. Actually, I enjoyed reading like the introduction. And I won't say the overall story is great because, as we were saying earlier, you can almost insert any mission here. And it doesn't really matter. Uh, they kind of plugged and played the missions. I didn't feel like I was playing complete story. But I love that intro story that they have. And I do love the way you're progressing through this, trying to get to that big final boss battle. Along with that, the miniatures are amazing. I really think they did a knock-it-out-of-the-park job with the miniatures themselves. I love the anthropomorphic theme. I love the mixed animals as well you don't see that in a lot of places now i don't know if they're going to be able to continue that with the rest of the series right because this was a very specific scenario that the heroes themselves aren't mixed species so it'll be interesting to see if they continue that theme on with their next set of games but i did love how it all kind of came together uh, i'd like to see what they can do with this system i don't know that this system is at its best i mean if you think about zombicide it's way better than the original zombicide right and zombicide has gotten better over the years so i'm curious to see how this progresses over time my son loved this game. He There's not many games that he asked to play over and over, and he did want to keep coming back. I actually was getting tired of waiting for him at one point because he had a lot of schoolwork, so I just kind of went on without him, and he wanted to jump back in, and he usually doesn't do that. If he sees me playing a game, he'll tend to watch for a turn or two and then kind of get bored and wander off. This time, he wanted to jump back in. So there is some appeal for family gaming, as you said, and I think it's the cool miniatures. I think it's the ease of gameplay. I would like to see them do more with this system, though. I wasn't satisfied as a gamer. I wasn't satisfied by playing it the way it is. I didn't think there was enough tension. I thought that it was just missing something. The initiative track was cool, but again, it lost its value over time as enemies got bigger defense and attacked themselves. One more defense, one more attack didn't make as much difference. So I just, I want to see more from this game. The disappointment you've heard throughout this review from me is because I think there is a neat game in there but like Zombicide, I hope it gets its chance. I hope people give it a chance, play it, and 
the designers take the lessons they've learned from this and make it a better game going forward into the future. So hesitant recommend for me, definitely, you know, I'd say decent for families, but getting through that whole 10 game campaign is quite a bit, especially, like I said, as each mission, I wanted more at the end of each mission. That's, that's the thing that stands out. And that's why it's my number one. And that kind of sums up my final thoughts too. I just wanted more at the end of the day. All right, so there you go. Uh, Hesitant recommendation mainly for families from both of us for Wander. But let's jump into our design discussion. We've touched on points like this a bit before, but it's always good to come back to them. Uh, How can enemy turns, player turns be structured? Are they integrated? Are they simultaneous? Are they uh, you go, then enemy goes, then I go? And let's actually start off with the one that Wander has. And this is, you know, an initiative track. This is not so common in board games, except for crawlers, but of course super common in RPGs and those kind of things. And some of them have very set initiatives, and some of them have kind of flexible initiatives like Wander does, where you can move things around. And in a way, this is just individual player turns taking place, and I can't do anything during your turn, kind of like a game like Pandemic. But clearly everything is mixed about and like a lot of enemies could go or a lot of heroes could go in a row. So what do you think about this one to start out since it's kind of key to the game we just discussed? Yeah, so this one and I would say games like Aftermath have this as well and games like Mice and Mystics. And I I compare these very similarly. This one has a little bit more flexibility to it because you can change the order. But basically you're dealing out an initiative at the beginning of the combat and it's going to stay relatively fixed throughout the combat. I actually like this system because you, yes, you could get some bad luck where four enemies go in a row or, or something like that. Or maybe it's, you don't have the right guy at the top of the initiative, the person that you'd like to be there. But at the same time, it makes it puzzly for me and more puzzly. And I like the puzzle that it puts in front of you. I like the fact that you can't always have your fast character going first. And actually, now that I think about it, too many bones to some degree has this as well. You're rolling dice at the beginning of combat, and you're kind of stuck in that order for the whole thing. And so I do like it because it's fixed nature of it, where once you see the order, you can kind of work toward figuring out that puzzle. Now, I do want randomness in there as well, and the dice rolling for combat does that, so it's not just an obvious puzzle, but I I do like fixed initiative tracks like this where it's going to be different from combat to combat what are your thoughts on them yeah for me i find them a little bit dull a lot of the time okay and to explain what i mean the the most exciting point of these but also sometimes the most frustrating is the initial draw or roll like there are enemies in front of me and oh yes i got to go in front of them that's awesome let me see if i can take out some of them before they attack Or, you know, vice versa, oh no, they're going to come and crush us, let's hope we can survive. So that's fine, I think that's kind of the most fun. And in some games where you have kind of that feeling over and over again, it can be, again, both frustrating, but I think it's still better, it's more exciting. Like, uh, Aeon's End is a good example. You know that you're going to have, like, an initiative order, but it's redetermined every turn. You draw a new card each time, so... It could be the frustration or the unbalanced feeling of, like, things happening in a bad order for you. But you at least get that excitement. And I think Too Many Bones does do this to an extent as well. Because, yes, you have that initial roll. But then uh, new enemies coming in, because you have that pretty frequently, especially in later battles. 
they're based on their level either going to come in at the end of the track or the beginning of the track and you have abilities to move up so you basically can like take a double turn and that kind of thing so i think that's cool i think wander does it well where like the targeting matters and you do want to be changing it up but if it's a game where i determine the initiative and then it's just set for a long while like uh you know sometimes when we play dungeons and dragons like if it's a really long drawn out fight it's like well this doesn't matter it just it, it pretended to be something more than just a basic you go, I go, like my turn, your turn, but then it just devolves into that. So I think either encounters need to be fast enough. Like Aftermath, I do think fights are almost always over in such a quick clip that it's fine. It still works well, even though there's not really much mobility there. But I think either you have to have manipulation within the initiative or it needs to be redetermined frequently, although that can add fiddliness. I think you need something more there. I think it's too boring just as a basic system if it lasts forever. Sure, I could see that. But most of these games don't do that. Most of these games, the combats are pretty quick where they have these initiative draws. Now, Aftermath actually is a completely different system. I totally forgot. That doesn't have that system at all. You actually draw cards and enemy activations happen kind of randomly in between players' turns. Oh, wait, you're right. Yeah, yeah. That's a completely different thing now that I think about it. I'm sorry. Mice and Mystics has the initiative, which you had already said. Yes, And I said Aftermath, too, and I was wrong on that. So that's actually a completely different thing, and we can talk about that later on. Aeon's End kind of frustrates me a little, and this is why. And I love Aeon's End. I'm I'm probably a bigger fan of the game than you. But the one thing that uh, frustrates me is the initiative track, because players' turns take a while in that game, and enemy turns can take a little bit of time in that game. And so if I'm first in one round and last in the other round, that annoys me. I do agree I don't mind somewhat of a random turn order, But what we do, kind of as a variant for the game, is we just have a totem that we put in front of the active player, and we just pass it around the table, so it's never going to be that long between your turns. So we draw player one card, it doesn't matter. We don't activate player one, we activate whoever has the totem. If player two gets drawn next, or player four, it doesn't matter. Whoever has that totem goes next. And that way, it kind of keeps the turn order going around the table. Now, yes, that does do some things to the tactics makes it more predictable i guess but in a way that's not frustrating to me whereas sometimes with the random initiative order it could be forever between your turns and i could lose interest because there's not a lot keeping me engaged so that's the only thing about the ans end system that frustrates me where it's not a fixed turn order because I think it can lead to more downtime or very little downtime, which also leads to more downtime. For example, if I'm last in one round and first in the next, I might not even draw my cards. I certainly haven't planned out or thought about what I'm going to do next. And so because there's little downtime for me, now I'm not ready for my turn when it comes around. So that's my only slight hesitancy with a completely random turn order where it resets every round. But I, I do like the concept of it anyway. Yeah, and I guess that takes us into kind of the wider realm of this thing, which does kind of hit back on our previous discussion as many, many episodes ago on like kind of simultaneous versus turn-based resolution. Because I think what you see with a lot of games these days, and we love it because we like simultaneous or integrated turns, whatever you want to call them, is I think designers are realizing that it's not great (laughs) if I just have to sit and watch somebody else take their turn for five minutes. And... I don't know, would you agree with me that that's worse in a cooperative game? Now, I don't know, you might say it's better, because I am automatically, in a way, invested in your turn. 
right? Sure. Like, you are working on the objective, so I want to see how you do. And, of course, like, if you're rolling dice, it can still be exciting, because I want to see how the random elements fall. But I would also argue that there is less tension and excitement in watching somebody else take a turn in co-op than a competitive game. Because in a competitive game, you have the tension of discovering what they'll do and how it's going to hurt you. Yes. Whereas in a cooperative game, like, I know it's going to work in my best interest, especially if it's kind of like an obvious thing you're going to do on your turn, or I just can't see your card, so I have, like, no kind of thought process to follow what you're going to do. So, yeah, I don't know, like... In, in a way, even though it should maybe be better, I can see co-op, like, you take a turn, I take a turn kind of methods being more dull. Yeah, and what you're talking about is you take a turn, then the enemy activates. And then I take a turn, and then the enemy activates. So we're kind of having longer turns per player because you're not only having a player turn, but also an enemy turn between. So it's going to take longer to get back to your turn. I, I do agree that there are pros and cons. The one thing I will say for competitive games is... Sometimes I don't care about what you're doing. And so if you have a longer turn, but there's a lot of thinking involved, I can be thinking about my turn. Now, it doesn't certainly work if the game state changes so much that you can't really pre-plan for your turn. The pro and the con of co-op games is you want to know what everybody else around the table is doing. And so you want to be invested in other people's turns, and so you can't do that pre-planning. So if you have a lot of thinkiness that goes into your turns... I think you lose the other player players around the table's turns because you're so focused on what you're trying to do. And again, sometimes that could be good because that could keep people from alpha gaming. But at the same time, you're also not really playing a co-op game. You're playing a bunch of solo games at that point. And so you're not going to be invested in what everybody else is doing. I think Marvel Champions falls into this a little bit, even though they have every player doing their actions and then all the enemies doing their actions, which is another type of game turn structure that we'll talk about next. But I do think because there's a lot of thinkiness to your turns there, and even games like Mage Knight and games like Dungeon Alliance have this as well, because you're doing a lot of thinking, you can't really be as invested in other people's turns. And so, I don't know. I I think there are pros and cons to it for sure. And I'll say kind of like an out there one that I guess is integrated, but... I didn't think the game was that great. We reviewed this pretty recently, and that's uh, Wonder Woman, the, what is it, Challenge of the Amazons, I think? Yes. Yeah, so I think the turn structure there is one that I like a lot, and I've seen elements of this in other games. To break down what I mean, you have kind of a enforced discussion period, you know, where you can play some cards, and then you have a silent, simultaneous period where you just do your stuff, But then you still, in a way, resolve your actions in a sort of turn-based fashion. Now, it is technically all, like, simultaneous. Like, all of us do our number one, all of us do our number two. But at least you get to, like, kind of look at each other and see what happened from your actions. So I really do like models along that way. And I would say, like, something like Spirit Island can have that. Well, Spirit Island does have that. I mean, I think that's the, the, the role model for that type of a method. Well, what I mean is uh, Spirit Island doesn't, like, have a period in the rules. Like, there is no phase that says now is the phase where you talk to each other. Whereas I kind of like that Wonder Woman actually had that as, like, a strict suggestion. But sure. that being said, I, every group I've ever played it with, of course, <laughs> has had some level of communication and cooperation. and been like, hey, I'm going to do this. Can you do that? So, yes, I, I do think... And, and Spirit Island also has... Like, when I play with other people, generally we will resolve one power at a time. 
And that might even be how the rules like lay it out, just because they're complicated. So you do get to enjoy, like, oh man, look how many guys Peter just burned with his like giant fire attack. See, I mean, we've said this before. I think Spirit Island is kind of the gold standard for me in terms of a really nice mix of like discrete kind of actions and simultaneous like zero downtime play. So yeah, it's hard to beat that. It grows in complexity too, which is one of the great parts about it. Early on in the game, you kind of really are stuck on your own island and kind of doing your own thing. But later on, those growth actions really matter. And I feel like that's where a lot of the discussion comes in is like, hey, I'm going to grow over to here. So that way I can help you blow up this guy or I can defend your guys here. Can you just take out one person there? It really does become a dialogue based on that, certainly as the game goes on. And I think that's one of the best things that can happen from integrated turns. If you have integrated turns, you want to have interaction based on that. And what I mean, so what we did with spare parts is there's a lot of movement effects in the game. And so there's a lot of times where you're like, oh man, my range is four. I can't hit this guy. It's like, well, if I push him two spaces towards you, would that help? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, now I can shoot him. That's the kind of moments you want because you want to have that discussion at the table where what I do matters and could help you. And that's where the puzzle is. The puzzle is not in one player's board. It's in what we can all do together. And I think those are the best kinds of integrated turns where your turns matter for each other and the order you do things matters. And yes, we can all plan our own cool stuff that we're going to do and we can all do cool stuff but it becomes even amplified when you work as a team. And that's that's the essence of co-op games anyway. So that's why you and I are, I think, such big fans of this integrated turn structure. When done well, it leads to more cooperation. And that's what we want in these kind of games. But there are still so many co-op games that kind of take, you know, whatever you want to call it, a pandemic model or that kind of thing. So what are the benefits of that? I guess one that I would call out is I think you can have more fine control over balancing at different player counts. Yes. I mean, Pandemic has kind of its own issues with balance just because of the set collection aspect, but I wouldn't say it's because of the turn structure. But, you know, knowing you're going to get an enemy turn after each player turn and having that, like, kind of oppositional balance there, I think is a lot easier than simultaneous, where, like, with two players, you got to control two player turns before the enemy turn, Whereas with four or five players, you got to deal with all of that and kind of the accumulation of all the actions all the players do together might be too much for the system. Or on the other side, you might just have too much crap happening in the enemy turn that just crushes the players in a demoralizing way. Well, yeah, I mean, when you spawn a bunch of stuff and then all four of your characters can micro focus on one enemy at a time, taking them down versus one or two people being able to focus on that enemy, it makes a huge difference in a game. And it is very hard to balance that. Now, it can be done at the same time, and there are different ways of doing it in enemy targeting systems and things like that. And you can actually even create cool tactical puzzles where maybe you don't have a taunt mechanic, or maybe you do, but you can just create neat scenarios where killing certain enemies is important just based on who they're going to target for the turn or getting out of the way so they can't target you for the turn becomes more important. And if your allies can help you do that, you can create a puzzle around that in and of itself. But certainly having four player actions versus two before the enemies get to activate could be a big deal. And like you said, it could go the other way too. I mean, you could just get such a big swarm of enemies that becomes overwhelming, not only to control all those enemies and the AI turn takes forever, 
but also just to deal with the amount of incoming damage that four players worth of enemies could spawn. You know, I, I do have another idea of when kind of the discrete turn structure could be the best way to go, and there's one I just thought of. I think that might be best in games with highly differentiated characters and roles. And I don't mean like even Spirit Island level, because there things are pretty integrated, so it all works pretty well. But like Root, for example, yes, that's a competitive game in its original design, but now it has a solo and co-op as an official mode. And I just think it'd be kind of a nightmare to try to, like, integrate my actions and your actions when the stuff I'm doing is in some ways very different than the stuff you're doing. Or, you know, to go more extreme, something like XCOM or something like uh, Space Cadets, you know, where I literally am performing different actions than you are. I mean, simultaneous, as you already said, has a potential to make people not as invested in each other's turns and not pay attention to each other's turns as much. I think that uh, would be a huge nightmare if it's a game where, like, people are performing very different roles and have very different types of turns. Well, yeah, like I said before, if you're going to go simultaneous, you have to have something to bring the co-op back in. You have to have a reason for people to cooperate and people to work together, whether that's taking down a common enemy so that you don't take as much damage, or whether that's being able to maneuver the game board or manipulate the game board. Uh, There's got to be something in there that makes you pay attention to the co-op. Cause if not, you're playing a bunch of, you know, mini solo games and that can happen no matter how you do the turn structure, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be simultaneous. The only difference is you're not paying attention in one scenario and maybe you're on your phone in the other one, I mean, I guess the benefit even of simultaneous there is if you're not having to pay attention to each other's turns anyway, you may as well be taking your turn at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I think that's a danger in all co-ops is, you know, you have to make the game cooperative. I think think that's sometimes what people lose in co-op designs is why do we need four players here? What's the difference between four and one players? Why, you know, solo games are great. But I think what I love about co-op is we all get to work together to solve this puzzle. And I want to feel like I'm working with the other people at the table. And so no matter what turn structure you pick, I think it's important that players feel like they're making a bigger impact on the overall game state. Well, and that's that's getting into so many other things we've discussed in the past, like limited communication and, you know, visible hands or not and unique actions and information So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways the games can be cooperative or not. Sure. But getting back to the the one turn and then we'll kind of wrap it up here, I think, because we're kind of getting to the end of different options is I do think there are some pros to it. Certainly, it lets you watch the other people if people's turns are interesting and exciting enough. And I think that's kind of the neat thing. And maybe even... You know, maybe we can even learn something from roll and write games, which aren't my favorite type of games. But in roll and write games, typically the person who's rolling gets to do some actions, but everybody else gets to do kind of mini actions. Maybe they get to use one of those three dice or one of those four dice. So maybe we can do something where, yes, I'm taking my turn, but I get you invested because you're going to get to do something minor on my turn, but that's going to help out my turn too. So I'd like to see somebody maybe investigate that as a new potential way to, to work on turn structure as well. When you have that in one of the games we like, Red Dragon Inn, Assault on uh, Greyport, or Attack on Greyport, I always forget what the, <laughs> the the verb is there, or the noun, 
But, you know, with that one, you've got the main player who's clearly doing the majority of stuff, but I can play one hero and one item on your turn, and generally I want to. So I think that's a good model for kind of the thing you're talking about. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's really fun. You know, the more the more I'm away from that game, the more I realize how much I like it. And you keep telling me you're going to bring it over here. But I'll, I'll get it to you next time I see you. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it in a while. So, yeah, no, that one's a really good model for getting everybody involved in each other's turns. And, and the interesting thing there is it's resource management at the same time because you have to decide what you want to save up for your turn. So that one does a lot of really neat things with it as well. But there's certainly room for the pandemic model. I will say the one thing that I think it does really well is introduce new players to gaming. You know, integrated turns is not new player friendly. I don't think when you have to have a puzzle where everybody's got to be kind of syncing and meshing and on the same page and you've got somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. It's harder to help somebody in those kind of scenarios. And so I think if everybody has a unique, discrete turn where they're going to do something, see the impact, and then the enemy is going to activate, I do think that there is a lot more room for helping newer players and just making people feel like they're getting to watch and learn and slowly learn a game and get into it. So I I definitely think there are some pros there as well. And especially if you're playing with people like younger kids, I think for them, you can help them out on their turns if they need it, stuff like that as well, which is why people probably think that they lead to alpha gaming as well. Yeah. Although I will say you have to be cognizant of this fact, but I think most integrated turn games, I, I certainly always do this, you could just take out the integration, the simultaneous aspect, and just be like, all right, what growth option are you picking? Cool. What growth option are you picking? Which cards are you playing? You know, and you can slowly work in the simultaneity as they feel comfortable with it. You know, it's, it's just like uh, limited communication games or any of those kind of things. Like, I always, some people don't do this, but I strongly recommend it. I will always play a game like, you know, Five Minute Dungeon. I will always play the first few times with no timer. Uh, Magic Maze, I will always play the first few times with full and open communication because all those things can be off-putting. So you're right in the end, like something like Pandemic is the maybe model people are most familiar with if they've played only competitive games in the past or only like, uh, you know, Monopoly in the past. But yeah, I think if you're smart, you can adjust games that are not with that structure and still make it work for new players. Yeah, no, I think we've had a really interesting discussion here. I feel like we could talk about this for another hour, and I know because, little secret, we lost the second half of our recording, and it was completely different last time we had this discussion. So I know we have a lot more to say about this, so maybe we'll revisit this sometime soon. Yeah, no, good idea. But everyone out there, please uh, stay safe, stay healthy. Hope you're getting some good gaming in, whatever that gaming looks like. Video games, uh, online gaming, tabletop simulator, solo gaming, gaming with your family. Uh, Just hope everyone out there is safe, healthy, and having a good time with things. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another top five list. So what else has been going on? Wait, so I've been playing a lot of Warfighter, and... Uh...
I have not won yet. <laughs> oh my gosh. How many games have you played? Uh, six or seven. And you're still excited about it. I'm learning lessons. And the cool thing is it doesn't even feel like I'm learning uh, like mechanical lessons or game lessons. It feels like I'm learning like better squad tactics. Like laying down, suppressing fire, like moving under fire, like the kind of stuff that I guess like a soldier would know instinctively. I'm actually like feeling like I'm getting better at it. I did come really close one time. I was trying to rescue a guy. <laughs> I forgot that I wasn't allowed to use like spray weapons or explosive weapons in the bunker because I might kill the guy. <laughs> so I just, I, I like filled that thing with machine gun fire for like three towns in a, uh, turns in a row. And that's how I won. I was like, all right. And then I checked the rules. I was like, oh, so that hostage is definitely dead. <laughs> oh, wait, <laughs> you were shooting into a bunker that had a hostage? Well, that's no. what I'm saying. It was a rescue mission and I wasn't allowed <laughs> to use explosive or spray weapons in there because obviously well, I tried to rescue the guy and I just didn't pay attention to that. <laughs> it feels like a lot of games do that, though. Like... There's the one little rule, which is great and thematic, and it all makes sense, but you miss it the first time you play. I know, um, what's that tower defense game that you love? Oh, Cloudspire. Yeah. I mean, that always happened to me. And I mean, even when I I was talking to you about it, it was like, oh yeah, no, that tower can only be hit by adjacent guys. It's like, what? Oh yeah, the other one with cover or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like, oops. I mean, this one wasn't that bad. I'm I'm just new to the game. Like... You you only have maybe four location cards in play for most missions, maybe five or six for a longer mission. And this was like the main objective and only had like this one thing on it. So it was really just me not paying attention. But yeah, no, it's, it's fun. Sure. What about you? What have you been playing? I mean, I guess besides what we're covering today. Yeah, no, mostly work stuff. Although I am almost through all the unlocks. The uh, that time whatever unlocks. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we did all three of those. Uh, which ones have you done so far? We did the first two, and I've done them all with Allison. Nicholas is going to do them with Linda. And they've been fun. I I really like this series. All of them are really good, although they did have a musical hint in one of them again that, uh, you know, that doesn't always sit well with me. Yes. (laughs) I I, I literally thought of you (laughs) when that thing came up. Yes. But it was fine. I actually, because I'm playing with Allison, who's eight, we are much more liberal with our use of hints. And you know me, I have very little patience for these games anyway. So I'm I'm quick to go to the hint system normally. And Allison has about as much patience as I do with it. So it's worked <laughs> out well. <laughs> well, you know, for that set, I use the hints more too, because uh, we were playing with Harrison, my seven-year-old, for most of it. Yeah. And same thing. Like, we used uh, hints more liberally, and it wasn't really a big deal. He was in for the... Wait, is it Circus one first? Circus one was first, and I found that one harder than the second one, which was supposed to be the medium one. The, I don't remember the, the, the second was. one, I had a major issue with the rules. They'd be like French Thief one, right? Yes. We blew through that one. They, they had some stuff that was really confusing. Once we understood that, it was, yeah, super easy. I, I agree with you. The first one was uh, harder. But yeah, Harrison was 100% in for the clown, like, circus one, and he was only somewhat in for the thief one he kind of lost interest a few times although uh he loved uh you remember the not not to give spoilers but like the little movie moment yes he thought that was like the coolest thing ever <laughs> yes and anything that was like with the app he was 100 percent in for and then uh the third one he like kind of gave up after five minutes so it was just me and my wife playing through the rest of it but i, I liked all of them i agree i think it's a great set overall yeah i love what they're doing with the app now i, I really do they've they're they're getting into their stride for sure 
with integrating the app more and making those machines very cool. All right, but we should probably get into the episode now. So for for those of you who are listening to this at the end, this is kind of, we're, we're trying something new out. We're kind of going to put our banter at the end. So let us know what you think, please. Either leave comments or uh, talk to us on the Slack about it. Hey, Mike. Yeah. I was before you on the initiative track, but I think I'm going to delay. All right, I'm done delaying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying to think of something witty, and yeah, you, you came in with the uh, the clincher there. Nice job.